Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Michael Mulhern. Michael was charged with commanding an artillery battery at the siege of Gdansk in 1629, and he had the fortune not to be blown up. Well done, Michael, and thanks for being a grand hetman of the crown. You're the best. If you would like me to lie about you and your historical rank, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 50 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. So this is this is quite the milestone for this series of ours. I'm very happy to present what is arguably my favourite thread of this conflict at this landmark number. You should know that 50 was the number of episodes I had originally calculated we would need to cover the Thirty Years' War. The original series for the Thirty Years' War was only 18 episodes long, so that should give you an idea of just... How much we've dragged this story out. But it doesn't matter, because today we're picking up from where we left off last time. Our focus is firmly on the relations between the Swedes and their neighbours in the run-up to the outbreak of war between the King of Sweden and the Emperor in summer 1630, before Gustavus Adolphus made that momentous leap towards immortality, the Swedish king was determined to cover his eastern flank by entrapping Poland in a war with Russia. And in this episode... We'll look at how he planned to do that, how hard these negotiations were, and the importance of them in the context of Russo-Swedish relations and, of course, the Thirty Years' War. So I hope you'll enjoy this very juicy diplomacy-filled episode as I take you all to 1619. Fedor Nikitish Romanov returned to Moscow in 1619, following over eight years in Polish captivity. Fedor had adopted the name Filaret after he and his wife had been forced to take monastic vows during the Time of Troubles, which had plagued Russia in the first 15 years of the 17th century. Henceforth, upon his return to Moscow, Filaret was known as the Patriarch, for not only was Filaret a well-connected and well-travelled Russian nobleman, he was also the father of the new Russian Tsar, Michael Romanov. Returning to his son's side from 1619 onwards, this duo worked together 
to improve Muscovy's position in world affairs, a task which was profoundly shaped by Filaret's experience of Polish hospitality. In 1610, Filaret had travelled to Poland to negotiate with King Sigismund III of Poland, but he was imprisoned shortly thereafter once he refused to recognise Sigismund's son, Vladislav, as the Tsar of Russia. In the war between Poland and Russia, which lasted from 1603 to 1618, Filaret had watched his homeland lose everything. To Sweden went Russia's Baltic position, and to Poland went vast swathes of the Ukraine, West Russian and Belarusian territories which she had accumulated over the previous decades. The ferocious expanse of Russian power and territory in the 16th century over the lands surrounding Muscovy had been the mission of Ivan the Terrible. Filaret now returned to Moscow with a mission of his own. To regain these territories lost to the Poles, so that Muscovy would have her heart restored to her. This mission was to shape how Russia viewed its place in the world, which allies it selected, and incredibly enough, the very course of the Thirty Years' War. In Filaret's mind, Russia had been pushed far back during her misfortunes, and she needed to return to her position of predominance over the East one step at a time. While working closely with his son the Tsar, Filaret attempted to engineer a vast coalition of anti-Hausberg states from as early as 1620. The logic for this approach was based on Polish relations and the perceived foundations of Polish power. The Polish king was closely allied with the Austrian and Spanish Habsburgs. Emperor Ferdinand had married Sigismund's sister, and Poland had intervened against the Habsburg enemy Transylvania in 1619. To regain what had been lost, Russia would have to fight Poland at some point in the future. For this conflict to be a success, though, Filaret believed that Russia should not fight it alone. Since behind Poland stood the Habsburgs, Russia should ensure that someone stood behind her as well. This logic was to characterise Russian diplomacy for over a decade, and it made possible not only the resumption of war between Poland and Russia, but also King Gustavus Adolphus's Swedish intervention into Germany in summer 1630. The Russian ambitions for revenge and resurgence were grand, but in the early 1620s they were tempered by the realities of the early phase of the Thirty Years' War. Filaret and the Tsar found that few powers were willing to listen to Russian entreaties and that they had more than enough problems of their own. These disappointments and frustrations of the Russians in the early 1620s would certainly have been shared by Frederick V, the dispossessed Elector Palatine, who worked in vain to orchestrate some kind of anti habsburg coalition around the same time. The 1618 Truce of Dulino committed both Russia and Poland to a period of peace which could not last. Yet there was no sense in breaking this truce without sufficient help. It was well known in Moscow that the Swedes were fighting their own war against the Poles, and that Gustavus's campaigns were frequently undermined by Habsburg intervention and the direct provision of aid to King Sigismund. This pattern of Habsburg aid to Poland during times of Polish difficulty reached its climax over 1627-29, but it posed a formidable threat to Russian security. Frustrated in the early 1620s, Filaret found his influence over his son slipping, and for a time he was replaced by a coalition of Russian nobles, or boyars. 
The tenacious patriarch Philaret was not to be denied, though. In the mid-1620s, he reasserted his influence and replaced his rivals. Between 1626-29, to 29, Philaret was at the height of his powers and renewed his mission to upset the Habsburg Polish apple cart. This mission was made easier by the course of the war in Germany. To the delight of both Frederick V and the Russians, from 1625, the Hague Alliance represented the first concrete anti-Hasburg coalition in Europe. This presented great opportunities for Russia, especially if Sweden were to join in. Alas, while Philaret was to be disappointed once more, as Sweden resumed its Polish war, the arrival of several diplomats in Moscow seeking Russian support for the Hague Alliance did demonstrate that Russia's anti-Hasburg temperament was at least known of. Interestingly, a common theme of this era was that Philaret was not content to allow Russia to be a mere pawn in this game. Instead, he worked to craft a home for Russia in the anti-Hasburg camp. Perceiving the division of Europe into the pro- and anti-Hasburg camps, Philaret would demonstrate that Russia would make her own way, regardless of the diplomatic efforts of other powers. Displaying a keen awareness of European relations from 1626, Philaret inserted Russia into the question and believed all issues could be reduced to a single question. Are you for the Habsburgs or against them? This approach compelled Russian diplomats to view the Dutch as their allies, even while the Dutch were only at war with the Spanish Habsburgs and were at peace with the Austrian branch. It also meant that the Ottomans were one of the Russians' most important potential allies for the damage that the Turk could do to the Austrian Habsburgs and their security in Hungary. It also meant that Philaret was more than happy to ally with powers with whom Russia had a score to settle. Sweden had stolen Russia's Baltic possessions from her during the Time of Troubles, but for the moment, Sweden was the lesser evil because she existed within the anti-Polish and therefore the anti-Habsburg camp. That cliché of the enemy of my enemy is my friend was wholeheartedly accepted by Philaret when it came to relations with Sweden. However, these relations could only go so far. From 1626, when Gustavus Adolphus attempted to appeal to the Russian Tsar for an alliance and wrote a letter presenting the existence of two camps within Europe, he was, at least to some extent, preaching to the choir. Yet, the history of Russo-Swedish relations contained a great deal of very recent, painful antagonism. King Gustavus Adolphus had ascended to the throne while at war with Russia, and his father, King Charles IX of Sweden, had his own history with the Tsars. At one point, Tsar Dmitri even wrote to King Charles IX, urging him to renounce his claims on the throne of Sweden at once, and to return that crown to the rightful King of Sweden, the King of Poland, Sigismund III. Incidentally, this correspondence from 1605-06 to demonstrated the simultaneous hostility and jealousy which the Russian Tsar felt for that Polish king, who would not recognise his title of Tsar. Dmitri did not last long as Tsar himself. He was yet another victim of the turmoil which consumed Russia during the Time of Troubles, which only Tsar Michael's ascension in 1613 brought to an end. The great hostility which Philaret and consequently Tsar Michael felt towards the Polish king was certainly exacerbated not only by the seizure of so much land for the traditionally Muscovite base, but by the disputes over the Russian succession. 
Until his death in 1634, King Sigismund III of Poland would maintain his claim on the Swedish and Russian thrones, the former for himself and the latter, the Tsardom, for his son Vladislav. By 1617, Sigismund was one of only a select few set of rulers who refused to recognise the Romanovs as anything more than usurpers. Sigismund insisted that the Russian throne belonged to his son, and his refusal to relinquish this claim significantly reduced Poland's diplomatic options, forcing his realm to rely upon the Habsburgs and forcing the traditional enemies, Russia and Sweden, to work against him. At the very least, both King Gustavus Adolphus and Tsar Michael Romanov could bond over the fact that the King of Poland refused to recognise their reigns as legitimate. Again, the bond forged through diplomatic necessity was not sufficient to compel Russian adherence to Swedish schemes. When Sweden did approach the Tsar's agents for an alliance, with the breaking of the Truce of Dulino between Poland and Russia as the end result of such an alliance, the Russian officials responded vaguely, saying, He, the Tsar, will think about how to take vengeance on the Polish king and his country for the wrongs done earlier, but at the present time of truce this cannot be done, because that peace treaty was sealed by great ambassadors with hearts and oaths, but if some wrong, however slight, be committed by the king of Poland or his son, by the Poles or by Lithuanians, then, although the period of truce be not expired, our great sovereign, His Majesty the Tsar, will be ready to take action in advance of its expiry against Poland and Lithuania to punish their wrongdoing. In actual fact, both sides had violated this truce several times since 1619. It was, as the Swedish Chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna, suspected, merely window dressing to excuse Russian inactivity. So Oxenstierna tried again, this time sending a Swedish diplomat in 1627 with powers to persuade Russia to join in a military alliance with Sweden before any Swedish-Polish truce was concluded. This initiative also misfired, because Oxenstierna and many historians misunderstood the Russian position. Neither the Tsar nor his father the Patriarch needed to be reminded of the importance of striking at Poland while she was distracted. What they needed instead was a coalition which they could join. This would provide a far more reliable platform from which a war against Poland could be launched. Otherwise, the Tsar quite reasonably feared that once Russia declared war, Sweden might abandon Russia in that war or even turn against her. Furthermore, Russia and Sweden were drawn together only by a common enemy. As we have seen, the Tsar had many reasons to resent the power of the Swedish king as well. Indeed, the only issue separating Sweden from Poland was Gustavus's ready recognition of Michael Romanov as Tsar. Indeed, it could be said that the main reason for Swedish opposition to Poland in the first place was, at its core, dynastic. The fact that Gustavus was fighting a war against his Polish Catholic cousin should not be forgotten. Aside from this, Filaret's influence certainly played a role in driving the anti-Polish course in Russian foreign policy, but there was no reason why in the near future this policy might not be reversed or complicated by the growth of the Swedish threat. If Russia was to regain her Baltic territories, which she would surely desire to do once the lands were retaken from the Poles, it was only inevitable that a war with Sweden was to be the result. This war could be postponed for now, owing to necessity and the immediate demands of realpolitik, 
but Russian security demanded greater insurance than such concerns. What she needed above all was another ally to insulate Russia from any potential Swedish treachery and to wage a more effective coalition war against the pre-existing coalition of the King of Spain, the King of Poland and the Holy Roman Emperor. In King Sigismund's court in Warsaw, it was well known that the Russians would not act against Poland without a coalition behind her. Polish diplomacy thus largely ignored any latent Russian threat until spring 1629, when news of the success of the Russians in building this coalition reached Sigismund's ears, just as the war with Sweden was reaching a fever pitch. In that period of 1626-29, Russian approaches to France, England, the Dutch and the Danes were stepped up, with the latter, in Denmark, believed to be of particular importance to Moscow, since the Danish king was at that point already at war with the Habsburg Emperor. To sweeten the deal and aid its potential allies, the Tsar authorised the provision of subsidies not of rubles or the limited reserves in foreign currency which Russia possessed, but of another commodity altogether, grain. By providing grain to its allies at low prices, this grain could then be sold to the Dutch or invested in the Amsterdam Grain Exchange in a highly lucrative arrangement. The Danes were bombarded with these proposals, and for a time the Tsar seemed to perceive King Christian IV of Denmark as the most valuable potential ally, but it was not to be. News of the Treaty of Lübeck, which brought peace between the Emperor and the Danish King, aroused considerable irritation in Moscow. When Danish diplomats arrived before the Tsar a couple of years later, they were greeted with demands that Russia would only consent to a favourable friendship with the Danish King if King Christian I proclaimed his friendship with the King of Sweden. This tactic was designed to repel the Danes rather than accommodate them, and Russo-Danish relations subsequently soured. The Danish card having failed, the Tsar turned to the Dutch, whose far-reaching interest in Baltic trade and control over the grain exchange made them natural economic allies. Politically, the continuous Dutch war with Habsburg Spain and the knock-on effects this had with the Emperor identified the Dutch Republic as an invaluable member of a potential anti-Habsburg alliance. These Dutch relations were significantly sweetened by the provision of grain and saltpetre at favourable prices, but Dutch unwillingness to make war on the Holy Roman Emperor meant that Russo-Dutch negotiations could only go so far. Although they had made some progress in Western diplomacy, it was in the Ottoman Empire that the Russians truly struck gold. From 1627, the Ottoman Sultan Osman II intimated through his ambassador to Russia that he would be open to an anti-Hausberg alliance. These proposals were received warmly in Moscow, and both Filaret and the Tsar jumped at the chance to incorporate the Emperor's most fearsome foe within their coalition. Russian officials were sent first to Transylvania, with the aim of including the tireless Bethlen Gabor in their schemes. The aim of orchestrating an anti-Hasburg coalition rooted in the East and consisting of Turkey, Russia, Transylvania and Sweden acquired a new impetus from 1628, when Cardinal Richelieu learned of it through the French ambassador to Constantinople. It was then that the aforementioned embassies to Poland and to Russia were launched by Richelieu, as we saw in the previous episode. Russian diplomatic initiatives had thus aroused French interest, and Richelieu, then occupied with a Huguenot revolt and a looming war with the Habsburgs in Italy, 
wasn't ignorant to the damage which Russia could inflict on the Habsburgs' position. Significantly, news of these diplomatic schemes compelled Gustavus Adolphus to act as well. Where once the Russians had appeared reluctant to break their truce with Poland, her activities since 1626 suggested that a war with Poland was now on the cards. To harness these developments, Swedish diplomats thus followed their French counterparts to Moscow in spring 1629. There they met a Russian court which was far more amenable and friendly to the Swedish requests for alliance. Gustavus asked for 50,000 quarters of rye to feed his army and asked in addition to be permitted to purchase this at the Tsar's price. To this came the reply from the Tsar's agents. Let your king simply write what food supplies he needs and our great sovereign will let him purchase them duty-free in the year that the corn comes to ripeness. The willingness to provide grain at such reduced prices indicated that Russia was serious about forging a closer political union, and indeed, the negotiations which followed confirmed this good news. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We're going to continue our examination of Russo-Swedish relations in 1629 and all that juicy stuff in just a bit, history friend. But first, I want to let you know of something that you may or may not be aware of. Oh, for crying out loud, I'm sure you're well aware of it at this stage. Matchlock and the Embassy is a historical fiction series, which I am currently obsessed with. The first instalment is out now, and the second instalment should be out in March at some point. But if you haven't purchased the first installment yet, then you should know that the second edition of that first installment is out now. That's right, I finally listened to Reason and to those reviews and got the first book professionally edited. It reads much better, it looks much better, 
and hopefully once the audiobook is done, I haven't started it yet, but hopefully I will, it will sound much better as well. This is all a learning process, guys, and I've really appreciated the feedback you've given so far, and I'm still really bowled over and humbled by how well this book is selling, considering the fact that it's all on its own and the promised sequels have yet to arrive, but it really does bode well for the future. If you weren't aware, Warfare in the Age of Matchlock and For God or the Devil Volumes 1 and 2 will be coming out within a few months. This is all as a result of me buying back the rights for my books from Winged Azar Publishing and basically making my own way with it. It's certainly scary and a different experience, but this means that I'll be able to be in complete control over these books and of course the audiobooks as well, which I am really looking forward to recording personally myself. Keep an ear and an eye out for these things, but don't forget Matchlock and the Embassy, the first instalment of the Matchlock series, is in its second edition and is out now. You can get it for $2.99 in ebook or $16.18, wink wink nudge nudge, in paperback. Thanks so much for putting up with these little ads, history friends. I appreciate it so much. Now let's get back to the episode. The records of the Swedish diplomats that had been sent to Moscow shed a great deal of light, not only on how the Tsar and Filaret interacted with foreign dignitaries, but also on the extent of Russia's awareness of the European situation by 1629. It must be emphasised that this self-awareness, supplied by an act of diplomatic service, made the following agreements possible, because it fortified the Tsar with information and knowledge that he believed he could trust. He no longer felt forced to rely on solely Swedish promises or claims, Indeed, the Tsar was able to inform the Swedish diplomats that a Russo-Turkish agreement had been reached. The record demonstrates clearly the link between the Tsar's decision to break the truce with Poland and the acquisition of a coalition, which Turkey and Sweden would both take an active role in. As Tsar Michael put it in his own words, he had decided, To help your sovereign and the other Christian sovereigns of the evangelical faith by all possible means, so that the evil designs of the emperor and the papists may not succeed. Owing to the wrongs done by the Polish king and his violation of the peace treaty, the great sovereign does not want to wait until the term of the truce expires, but intends to go to war against him and to help your sovereign. The importance of these developments in spring 1629 must not be understated, nor should the interconnected nature of European relations be ignored. Without the firm agreement with the Ottomans, the Russians would never have felt comfortable to break the truce with Poland and make war in an alliance with the Swedes against a common enemy. And, as we've learned by now, without the Russian commitment to make war against the Poles, it is highly unlikely that Gustavus Adolphus would have felt secure enough in his position to make his grand entrance into Germany. Indeed, the conclusion of these negotiations solved several problems for all the powers involved. The Russians were no longer fearful that the Swedes would abandon them now that the Turks were also party to the arrangement, and the Swedes were confident that the Poles would not attack them in the rear when they were engaged in Germany. One could therefore argue without too much exaggeration that an appreciation for the course of the Thirty Years' War is impossible without first understanding the complexities of the whole concert of European powers which participated, directly or indirectly, within it. 
It must also be underlined that the Russian decision was not motivated either by Gustavus Adolphus's approaches or by Cardinal Richelieu's diplomatic genius, although it would make a nice story. Not only did Russian diplomatic initiatives prove pivotal to the creation of an anti-Habsburg coalition in the East, but subsequent Russian efforts to improve and tighten relations between the Ottoman Empire and Sweden exemplified the far-reaching diplomatic game which the Tsar and the Patriarch were playing. Over 1630-31, Ottoman envoys passed through Russian territory en route to speak with the Swedish king, while Swedish diplomats took the opposite journey, all in the name of a scheme which the underrated diplomatic panache of the Patriarch Philaret and the Russian Tsar had set in motion. It was hardly surprising that the good news which the Swedish diplomats brought back with them to their king was warmly welcomed. In spite of the Tsar's request that the alliance be kept secret, Gustavus apparently could not contain himself, and for the next several years told anyone who would listen that the Russian Tsar stood alongside him in the anti-Habsburg mission. In his own words, Gustavus said, The king is especially glad that the Tsar of Muscovy has promised to help the oppressed Protestants of Germany. Many thousands of people have been comforted by this promise, and may Almighty God move the Tsar's heart and mind to carry out the promise he has given. As the Swedish ambassador in Moscow put it, capturing the essence of Russian propaganda at the time as he did so, Gustavus Adolphus and his army are the advanced wall of Muscovy, its vanguard regiment fighting in Germany for Russia's Tsardom. By painting the Swedish intervention in such a light, the Tsar brushed off the concerns of the Swedes when they informed him that they had made a truce of their own with Poland in September 1629. Indeed, it seems highly likely that the Tsar knew about the truce, even as the French attempted to conceal it from them. The Russians understood and appreciated Sweden's position in the context of its anti-Habsburg struggle far more comprehensively than either the Swedes or the French seemed to have given her credit for. Since she had crafted a coalition against the potent Habsburg threat rather than merely launched a war against the Poles, it did not matter all that much to the Tsar that one element of this coalition determined to wage a war against a single Habsburg actor. After all, this multi-layered anti-Habsburg arrangement had taken shape for some time in Franco-Dutch relations and in the preceding negotiations of the Hague Alliance. In neither of those arrangements, in other words, were all members of the coalition at war with all members of the Habsburg camp, in other words, the King of Poland, the King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, and it is highly likely, considering its participation within and knowledge of European relations, that the Tsar saw his role in the latest anti-Habsburg coalition in the same light. Indeed, as an anti-Habsburg ruler, the Tsar was cognizant of the fact that Sweden would be able to inflict the most damage on the Habsburg centre if she was first freed from her war with Poland. To facilitate this, the Tsar was willing to help the King of Sweden end his Polish war. He did not resent Gustavus's exit from the Polish war because he understood its strategic implications, even while, on the other hand, the Tsar certainly would not have refused Swedish military aid against the Polish king if it had been offered to him. As soon as His Majesty the Tsar begins his war against the Pole, our sovereign will be freer to go to war against the Kaiser, recorded the Swedish ambassador to Russia in April 1630. This represented the culmination of Russo-Swedish negotiations. 
the arrival of another French delegation in Moscow in May 1630 demonstrated the clear lack of awareness of the previous Russian activity by proposing a coalition which was remarkably similar to that which the Tsar had nearly concluded. This insult was parried though, amidst further declarations of goodwill from the Turkish Sultan and enthusiastic French offers of support for the scheme. The Russian agent moved to Stockholm and reached the Swedish capital by July 1630. In his hands, he held the documentation which confirmed the alliance between the Ottomans, Transylvania, Russia and Sweden. The Swedish king needed only to sign it for it to become official. Yet this Russian agent was simultaneously concerned and comforted to discover that the Swedish king was no longer in Sweden. Concerned because it meant that Gustavus would not yet be able to make the alliance official, but comforted at the same time because Gustavus's action demonstrated his faith in the Russian promises without need for the official documentation. Evidently, Gustavus had been convinced of the Russian sincerity to fight the common enemy through the dispatches from Moscow of his resident envoy, not to mention the increasingly anti-Hausberg behaviour of Cardinal Richelieu's administration. Seizing the moment, Gustavus Adolphus took it upon himself to act. He was already in northern Germany by the time the Russian agent arrived in Stockholm to find him absent. In the mind of the Swedish king, more than enough foundations had been established to guarantee a triumph. He must now rely on a successful military campaign, since the successful diplomatic campaign had been achieved. Gustavus believed that the best way to accelerate the pace of Russian commitment was to demonstrate how serious he was about his anti-Hausberg quest. By demonstrating his unshakable faith in the cause, his allies would be compelled to do the same. On the 19th of May 1630, Gustavus set sail for northern Germany. After so many months of negotiation and preparation, he was more than ready to make his mark. Russian participation in this act of the Thirty Years' War cannot be overlooked if the true range and impact of that conflict is to be appreciated. Without Russian activity, Gustavus's Polish foe would never have been neutralised, and Gustavus would never have felt secure enough to intervene in Germany, thereby prolonging the conflict for another 18 years. On the one hand, Gustavus's caution and willingness to prepare the ground before making war on the Empire demonstrates his patience and foresight. On the other hand though, Gustavus was immensely fortunate that the Russian Tsar and the Patriarch Philaret interpreted world affairs in the same black and white terms that he did. Had the Tsar displayed a dual hostility towards Sweden and Poland for their previous attacks on Russia, one imagines the Thirty Years' War proceeding very differently. As it happened though, Gustavus Adolphus was in the right place at the right time to dramatically alter the course of the conflict. His arrival in Germany must be seen as a turning point in that theatre, yet this Rubicon was only crossed with the considerable help of the distant Tsar. In the next episode, having set the foundations, we examine the scene of Gustavus's entry into Germany at long last. What was his arrival like? How was he viewed? And what did he do for the remainder of 1630? These are all questions we'll attempt to answer next time, but until then, history friend, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 50 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening. Remember Matchlock and the Embassy, second edition is out now, and I'll be seeing you all soon. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.